Welcome to Quad Life. I'm your host, Brian Bell. Today, our guest is Jim Molina. Jim is an extremely positive individual who knows not only the power of having a dream, but also seeing it through to success, regardless of what barriers and limitations may be in the way. At 17, he was a champion-level freestyle skier, with sights set on competing in the Winter Olympics in Calgary. At 18, Jim broke his neck during a performance at the Toronto Ski Show, leaving him paralyzed from the chest down. In August of 2002, Jim and a team of nine friends went to Tanzania to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. The team was dubbed the Cord Climbing Team the Climbing Over Restriction and Disability Society. Among other records, Jim set the world altitude record for a quadriplegic at 14,800 feet. Jim continues to advocate for people with disabilities, including the integration of people with disabilities in outdoor recreational activities. Jim now resides in Comox, where he lives with his wife and fellow Kilimanjaro climber, Corrine. And their two children. Welcome to Quad Life, Jim. Well, thank you very much, Brian. It's a it's a real pleasure to be pleasure and an honor to be invited to be on your uh, your podcast. It's uh, it's pretty exciting. You and I are both North Vancouver boys, born and raised. We've both since left the North Shore. What do you miss about North Van, if anything? And are you glad you moved? Comox. Well, I miss Lynn Valley, um, uh, but it's funny, you know, because when I go back now, uh, I don't quite miss it quite as much. It's just so many people and traffic and all the, you know, the little place. Oh, I remember when we had to walk home from here after such and such an event or whatever. And it's like, you it's know, not it's, even there. There's no there's the trail we cut through and we ran through somebody's yard or something. And now that's a bloody four story building or something. And yeah, so I, I miss, I miss my childhood is what I really miss, but uh, I miss Lynn Valley for sure. Uh, but the way it was not kind of the way it is. And, and ironically moving here to Comox, one of the things I love instantly about the feel of this place is it felt like that small town community again. And, uh, you know, you know, all your neighbors and, you know, old Bob over there and, you know, so-and-so like you just, it's that small town feeling again, which is, uh, which is really nice to revisit later in life as a, as a father instead of a kid. Uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting revelation. Do you notice any uh, change in uh, growth since you've been there in a way that that's maybe showing signs of becoming again like a North Van all over again, or or is well, that, that just not not yes yes and no? I mean, the, the entire island is is pretty pretty quiet and pretty. Uh, it's it's kind of got its own feel and groove and whatnot and until you live here you don't really get that but uh that's a real nice feel and a nice fit um but you know we've got people coming here from everywhere it seems and uh it does change the fabric a little bit and i can't complain too much because i'm one of those people too so yeah i came i came to a little town and I'm trying to fit into uh, to the fabric here, I'm trying to yeah. establish myself, and it takes a bit of time. Yeah, but I mean, but Lynn Valley and North Van, um, you know, wouldn't have traded that for anything. Like, that was such a wonderful, wonderful experience. And, you know, you're so close to the city, but yet you're you're totally insulated from the city and all its all its issues um it was it was a great place to grow up it really was it was it was uh, uh a place where you could just go and get into just about anything and any kind of trouble and speaking of that 
<laughs> I wanted to start about asking you a little bit about uh, skiing and, you know, like you think back about when you, you could go up Grouse Mountain so easily to go skiing. How did you get involved in aerial skiing? <laughs> well, I was, I started skiing in grade four. Um, I was at Upper Lynn Elementary School and they had the ski program in, in grade four. We got to go up Grouse Mountain and learn to ski and that was how I started skiing. And then in around grade, I think it was the Christmas of grade eight, um, there was a freestyle skiing camp up Mount Seymour. And uh, a buddy of mine was going to go in it. And I asked my parents if I could go in it. And uh, that was kind of how it all started. We went up there for a three-day camp. And after the the third day, the third day we did aerials and I did my first flip and it was like, this is pretty good. And, uh, and that was kind of the genesis of the whole thing really. And I just instantly fell in love with all three disciplines back then. There was moguls and aerials and of course there was ballet skiing, but, um, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was sort of the ragtag edge of what we have as snowboarding now. It's like we were the, you know, we were the outlaws on the mountain. We were the ones getting in all the trouble and we were the ones, you know, ripping, ripping down the hill and putting all the, the other skiers at risk, apparently. Not that, you know, we did that on purpose, but, you know, you know what it's like if you got noobs going down a bump run. I mean, there's, they might, they might get a little startled. Were you uh, hoping that that would take you somewhere? Like, did you have aspirations for uh, Olympics or anything like that? Yeah, I remember being, uh, we were at the, the Shell Cup, which is the national championship. And I remember we were, we were it was in Banff that year. And we had uh, the federal minister of, of sport, Otto Jelinek, was there. And he made the announcement that... Uh, that freestyle skiing was going to be a demonstration sport in Calgary. I think that was in 1988. And, uh, and so this would have been 1981 and, and everybody in that room was uh, pretty much, you know, you think about all the gold medals we won sort of in the first few years, first few Olympics and all those guys were in that room that day. And, uh, and the whole place just erupted at the news because that was what we all wanted. We all wanted to ski for Canada is what we wanted. Um, and we wanted to do it at the Olympics, not just on the World Cup. So, yeah, the Olympics, you know, I was going to be the perfect age for Calgary, you know, and a lot of my buddies who I skied with obviously went there. And, um, and that was amazing to see as well. But I, I, I really wanted to ski at least one year a World Cup. Like I wanted to... Uh, I wanted to live all the stories that the World Cup guys talked about, about being in, you know, Val d'Isere. And, oh, remember that time we were at that pizza place? And so-and-so, I oh, remember that, you know, I wanted to live that. Warren Miller lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. So it eventually was the cause of your accident. Can yeah. You, can you take me back to that time? Like, Yeah, yeah, of course. Um Seems like a, 150 years ago now, but uh, it was 1981, and uh, I'd finished. Uh, I was overall BC freestyle skiing champion that year, and I was chosen to uh, tour the country with with uh, an elite troop of freestyle skiers, and um, and we were doing the the. Uh, the kickoff show at the Toronto ski uh, ski show and uh, it was my last jump of the show I was doing a double back flip and you know you look back you look back on it a, a thousand a million who knows how many times I don't know what happened you know uh, the equipment was set up wrong yeah maybe probably well it was proven but whatever I mean something happened and the doubles back flip that I used to land I came short on and uh, pretty much, you know, sort of had another quarter turn to go. My ski tips dug in and was landing on an airbag. So totally different dynamics. And the, uh, the ski tips flexed as they hit. And then I went into a forward roll the way you would. And the ski tips 
you know, uncoiling with all that force, plus the force of me coming down on the airbag, plus, you know, whatever other stars were out of alignment for me, uh, dislocated my neck at the, between the fourth and fifth cervical. So then what happened after that? Was in intensive care in Toronto for six weeks and then airlifted out of there to Vancouver and a couple of weeks there in the spinal cord unit and then over to GF Strong. And uh, I was there for, I think, about nine or ten months. And then, you know, they wanted me to stay a little bit longer and I didn't really want to stay a little bit longer and sort of between all of us, we decided that it was just best if I maybe left. Yeah. I mean, there were no hard feelings or anything, but it just, I, I, I really, really just needed to go home. You didn't, you didn't feel like you were progressing enough to really warrant. Well, you're young and naive and I, I look back on it and I think, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff you didn't learn that you should have learned back then <laughs> because you're going to figure out after, you're going to have to learn it sooner or later anyway. And, uh, you know, at least someone was willing to tell you. Learning stuff through hard knocks is not always the best way to do it, but it is memorable. What do you feel like you missed out on being taught? Like, um, I, I just kind of felt like I was missing out on life. You know, I, I was, uh, it was, it was different than a lot of guys in there, and that you know, it was my hometown, and I had all these people who would come and visit me every day and really quite busy socially. And uh, it would just seem like I, I wanted to get back into the fabric of the real world, so to speak. And uh, you know, there were just, just, just learning your ways around day to day, you know, some of the grooming, some of the transferring techniques, some of the, I really liked all my physical work, but I didn't like all the, the ins and outs of daily living, the things to make life easier, you know, all those things that, you know, you just learn from being in there and you learn to perfect your craft a little bit in there. And yeah, I kind of feel like I would have done better if I'd have stayed, but you know, it's not the way that chapter got written. And it, I guess GF Strong was was kind of a different place there than than it was for me i mean i was almost 20 years behind you yeah it was uh i'd never been in a i'd never been in the hospital but i'd never been in a place surrounded by um such sadness you know everybody was sad and everybody was everybody had the right to be sad i just for whatever reason wasn't affected in the same way like maybe because you know i still had you know my friends were still i was still hanging out with my friends they just came to visit me over there and and i remember a lot of the the people in gf didn't have that they come from smaller communities and uh and they don't get too many visitors and uh and and that was that was really sad and it was uh it was it was kind of hard to you know, we did we did the best we could to uh, you know to cheer him up. And if you uh, if you want to, you want to hear a neat story about that? Yeah. Well, when when uh, when I was injured, um, Wayne Gretzky. That was the year he scored the scored 192 goals and got however many uh, or no 92 goals and 199 assists or whatever it was. Crazy that year. Yeah. Anyway, he was playing the Canucks one night when I was in the in GF, and uh, my dad brought him in that afternoon. And uh, so my dad walks in the room, and Gretzky walks in the room, and then a couple of other business executive types. And my dad's got this <clears throat> this roll underneath his arm, and. Uh, so I'm chatting with Wayne in the room and my, my roommate Gord's just like kind of jaw on the floor. And uh, my dad pulls out this roll and he's got a roll, a roll of uh, posters. And uh, because Gretzky had been doing uh, ads for 7-Up that year. So dad starts putting these posters down in front of Wayne. Wayne starts signing them and dad takes them, rolls them back up. 
and just keeps doing this. And then, you know, as we're chatting, didn't think anything of it. And uh, true testament to my dad, you know, he was always about the team and about, you know, doing what's best for everyone. So then when, when we're leaving, I'm kind of wheeling out the guys to the elevator kind of thing. And by now, every single guy on the, we were the fourth floor back then, every guy on the fourth floor is just hanging out in the hallway because word got out that, you know, stuff's happening. And, you know, Gretzky, Gretzky walks by and he says hello or shakes the hand to every guy. And my dad hands everybody a poster. So everybody got a, a Wayne Gretzky signed poster that year. And uh, right on. Yeah, a real, real special little thing that, you know, just did. You know, Wayne Gretzky's probably one of my most, one of the people I wanted to meet the most in the world. But this isn't about me. So, <laughs> so let's get into, uh, you didn't get good compensation when you hurt yourself. You tell no, me? I had to do the, I had to do the privately funded, uh, court proceedings and that's very expensive and uh you know in the end in the end we didn't get a whole lot out of it my friend yeah it was it's uh it's not a a happy story is it really it doesn't end well that part of it anyway so you really you didn't get much in the way of compensation um at all did you no no we had to uh kind of had to had to find a way and what did what was the way that you found? Well, I was uh, I was on um, sort of the gain program for for many years, um, and then started to uh, started my own business and uh, had a bit of luck with that, and that was good, and that sort of got me got me going, and uh, and then you know everything kind of kind of changed when uh, when I met my wife and then kind of the rest of it is is kind of history but uh yeah just I just struggled for a long time with that like you know what does the future mean what you know what what's it going to look like and uh, you know lived at my parents home in north bend for a good long time uh just trying to come up with answers to all those things and there weren't a lot of answers to be had at the time. I mean, there was no, the guys, you know, for example, the guys who were counseling me and whatnot were, were some of the pillars of, of, uh, of the spinal cord community. You know, I remember meeting with Stan Strong and Doug Mowat and, you know, these are guys who are legendary now for breaking yeah. the way for, uh, for all of us but uh you know those guys were the guys that would come over and talk to me and and uh you know try and try and help me out with stuff and uh and pretty amazing guys really and pretty lucky to have that experience as well jim was there anything that ever really replaced what you got from aerial skiing uh there, there's no no there's nothing um being a being a father and watching your children succeed is probably the closest but but so different you know it's it's just a different thing can you take me back to when you and core met uh yeah sure that was uh it was my niece's, uh, she was in grade four. She was in Corrine's class. And uh, she was having trouble with their times tables. And so my sister said that if she could learn her times tables by the end of the year, she could have anything she wanted. And uh, when it came right down to it, she did learn the times tables. And what she wanted was to have her teacher over for barbecue. And so my sister, to have a little bit of mercy on the teacher, she uh, invited myself and a few other friends over just to make it a bit more like a, an adult party than an extension of grade four in uh, Corrine's classroom kind of thing. So that was how we first met. Um, you know, we kind of winked at each other and said, you know, if you ever want to go for a beer after work one day, 
and uh, and yeah, we just started. She was living out in Kits, so you know, I just started hanging out in Kits, and that's not a bad place to go for the odd tasty beverage. Yeah, you guys got married around the time you and I met. How yes. is it? How's it been being married for twenty whatever years now? Um, yeah, I think we're at, uh, we were 2003 was when we actually got married, but, uh, it, it, it's, it's amazing. It's awesome. Um, it's, it's different. Um, one of the things that's quite different is that if you meet as a disabled individual and in my case, a, an able-bodied person, uh the the relationship sort of has disability built into it um right from its genesis unlike if you are in, if you're married to someone and then you have the accident or you know have the spinal cord injury there's a lot of stress because you know you know the person before their injury and now you know them after the injury and and the, you're dealing with the injury as well as the person as well as your feelings towards it. I mean, just, it's a big mess of stuff versus if, you know, every, you know, the cards are on the table when you, when you, uh, when you meet with your disability and you kind of know, know where it's at, know what you're in for. And, uh, I, I can't say one way is better than the other, but I can say that, you know, it's, it seemed a lot easier than, than what it could have been the other way maybe i feel like from my experience i would say getting married post-injury is probably better or healthier or easier maybe i don't know yeah it's, it's hard something. it's really hard to say yeah who knows who's got the answers i don't yeah i don't want to know all the answers so your kids are getting a little older now uh are you yeah. seeing much of them uh yeah they're uh they're both in high school now, and is in grade 12, and Bryson's going into, well, he's in grade 8 now, and uh, they're doing, they're doing amazing, and Deera, you know, she got straight A's last year, and that's certainly her mom's side of the gene pool, I think, but, you know, either way, it's all good. Right on. And Bryson, uh, you know, Bryson's playing basketball, playing soccer, there, his little basketball team won the the district tourney last year. So it was kind of like a little bit of March madness on a grade seven sort of scale. So yeah. yeah. Is he tall? Not yet. He's playing right. point guard still. Oh, right on. Well, that doesn't matter then. <laughs> yeah, no, he's good. He, he will be tall because I'm pretty tall and uh, Corrine's, Corrine's on the tall side. So, yeah, you know, he won't be a monster height wise, but he should be pretty solid. What's your uh, relationship like with your kids? Uh, you know, I'm, I am the luckiest guy in the world because my wife is such a good communicator and such a good relationship person uh, that she, she uh, you know, she, I, she teaches grade three and uh, I must still be in grade because I learned from her all the time, like just how to, how to navigate an emotional world. I'm, I'm not by nature that kind of person. I'm more of an introvert and I, I'm, you know, COVID. What do you mean COVID? I got to stay in. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, you know, it wasn't a stretch for us, was it? No, we're, we're bred for this sort of thing. I know. And, uh, yeah, so I mean, it's, it's, it's nice that the kids, you know, you start seeing the world and living the world through your kids' eyes and, uh, and through their senses and, uh, and it's just, it's an amazing journey. You know, you, I wouldn't trade that for the world, you know. What are some of your biggest family challenges? Um, well, my, my biggest personal challenge um, is to, to not sort of insulate myself at home, uh, to get out to, to, to enjoy things outside of this, these four walls. Um, I, I, I love, I, I, I enjoy it. It's just, I'm susceptible to cold. I'm susceptible to moisture. Um, I'm, 
you know, you know how much fun it is when you get kind of bone cold or you get yeah. soaked to the skin or, you know, you find yourself in a predicament and you're still two hours from home. And, uh, uh it's, it's just, it's just stuff. But, um, you know, I live a, about a block away from the beach down here and, uh, you know, I, I get out a fair bit, but, uh, but yeah, once the weather starts to turn, and yeah, not that excited about going out there to be honest. You got some nice shoreline though to go and explore. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, being mid island, you know, there's so much to see here, and uh, you know, it's it's just a great place. You know, it's yes. it's just so home now, though. Jim, is there any uh, things that you think you would do different as a father or husband? Looking back, I think I would have got. I think I would have got a bit more. I uh, would have made getting getting a formal education, getting some kind of uh, of accreditation of some sort to recognize. You know, you're a specialist in this skill right here. Um. I can say that. I don't know if I mean that though, because some of the some of the greatest times I've had professionally are when I didn't know what I was doing or getting myself into, and you learn this whole new skill set that's you know applicable that you never would have had that opportunity if you would have said, "No, I'm just an accountant. I don't do any of that any of that graphic work." Um, so yeah, I, I I don't know, and I, I find. You know, the the question's kind of irrelevant, to be honest. Yeah. You know, stay in, cool, stay in school, kids. You know, maybe maybe that's what I'm turning into, but I would like to have that. Just some kind of something to hang on the wall. Yeah, and something, you know, when you apply for the job, you actually got something. You're not like, well, I can do all this other great stuff, which is great stuff. I mean, you know, you spend you spend 40 years on computers, you learn some stuff. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. What's, what's getting you up in the morning now? Well, I'm a helper, to be honest. But, um, <laughs> uh, I, I still obviously still work on my computer. Um, I enjoy, bought a 3D printer about 12 months ago, and I really enjoy that. I've always enjoyed, uh, ever since high school, before I was injured, I was always, I loved drafting and mechanical drafting and drawing machine parts. And I don't know why that's appealing to me, but I love doing that. And uh, so when computer assisted drafting and design came about, that was probably the, the one and only thing I ever sort of saw through to the end. And then when I got out the other end, there was, uh, there weren't any jobs yet because it was brand new. So Anyway, I uh, just went into computer design and, and graphics and blah, blah, blah. But always like the 3D modeling part of it and having a 3D printer. Now you can take anything you can dream up and you can actually put it in your hands and, you know, it becomes a real thing. What program do you use? Um, I use, uh, for the modeling, I use one called Cinema 4D. Okay. It's uh, it's kind of an animation. -y. They make I think Sony used to make their movies out of it, <clears throat> but I just use it for the modeling. I don't do any of the key. Well, I mean, I can do keyframe animation, but I don't really. Yeah, I I, I taught myself how to use SolidWorks. Oh, you see, that's a good one. And that uh, has like you can make animation too, or you can make the parts work and everything. It's yeah. Cool. It is, it's really cool. Again, you know, it'd be nice to have, you know, some formal training in it so you're not just hacking around, but hacking around's fun as well. So uh, what's your caregiver situation like? Um, it's, it's good. I've, uh, I've got, you know, a couple of, couple of regular ones and it's, uh, it's, I'm, I'm pretty stable. I, I, you know, I, start to stay between the lines and uh, everybody stayed healthy. The, the whole COVID end of thing was a bit of a bit of a topsy turvy situation, but I mean, not, not so much for me. I just mean in a general sense, um, I think it's, it would be uh, 
definitely, it's definitely different in a smaller community. There's just not the knowledge base of, of, uh, of, of, of care attendance. Can I put you on hold for a sec? Sure. I'm back. <laughs> you recently had a bad hospital experience. You went for a yeah. kidney surgery and came out with pressure yeah. sores. Yeah, I'm, I'm, that's, you know, that's what I'm doing here is waiting for wound care to call. Um, yeah, I went in, I've got, uh, I'm blessed with, uh, with kidney stones, which I've never, ever had before. But since we did a little change in the plumbing system down there, uh, this seems to be my new reality. So they had to go in uh, through surgery and through my back and get into the kidney and either pulverize or pull or whatever, get rid of the stones. And uh, so the, the uh, surgery went great. But when I was in, uh, you know, they have this, you know, this lovely, you know, air filled bed that's, you know, doing yeah. all its funky stuff. And I'm also on, you know, medication to help with the pain and the inflammation and whatnot. And uh, normally my body will tell me if there's some kind of discomfort going on, but uh, it didn't give me any, any signals and the uh, nursing staff, you know, they, I, I guess I, they didn't, you know, check my skin or anything. They just assumed we were good because we looked like, you know, we're, we're all smiles and chuckles. But as you know, as a quad, you don't always know that your body's screaming at you. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I got a big, uh, big welts on the back of my heels. And, you know, the worst one is now, you know, all drained out and looking nasty and at least it's drying out, so it's getting better. But uh, yeah, I just sort of been going around with my feet up on a, a large piece of foam, and so it's kind of kind of not my style. I've always kind of been been pretty lucky with skin stuff. This is the first one I've ever really had in forty years, so I shouldn't be too grumpy about it. But uh, yeah, it's just you know, I guess you live and learn. So what are the uh... Do they have to pack it or are they just putting, what are they putting on it? Or No, nope, it's just, they're just keeping it, you know, they'll change the dressings and it's just, they're just keeping it clean and dry. They're putting like iodine on it. Okay. That's the big one these days, eh? Iodine for everything. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it, yes. It's working fine. They said it might sting and, you know, I'm a tough guy. I can take it. So, yeah. uh, you know. And, uh, but yeah, it's coming along. It's coming. You just, along. you winced a couple of times and that was it. Yeah. Sometimes I just winced to make them jump, but no, not really. It's <laughs> such an old trick. It's such an old trick. And you know what? You get so much mileage out of it. Every time you get a fresh person, you know, they're going to fall for it. And they're like, oh my dear. Oh my God. I'm so sorry. Yeah. yeah. I was, uh, I was in, uh, in Core's grade four class in um, at uh, at Westover, and you know the class. Yeah. And when the, they were doing something, you know, we're doing the nervous system, and the little little girl has got the little pin. She's going down my thigh and gets to my kneecap, and then I jump on the kneecap and just about send the kid through the roof. But you know, it just never gets old. Yeah, I don't know. It's so funny. Um, ha having gone through that experience now, is there anything you do different? Bill? Well, I, I, you know, it was kind of because of you know, this whole virus thing that, you know, we couldn't bring in my regular, my regular foam, my foam knee bolster. So, you know, that's kind of part of the problem too. If we would have been able to bring in our, our regular amount of stuff, which isn't a lot of stuff, but it's, you know, stuff you need. Um, yeah, we would have been fine, but, uh, you know, you're just trying to abide by everyone and go by the rules and not be a troublemaker. And, uh, you know, the sad part is, is, you know, it didn't quite work out. I mean, you know, the, the kidney surgeon did an amazing job that, you know, from there on, it sort of became a little more, uh, a little more sketchy, but uh, we're getting there and you know what, I'm going to be fine. So. I just got to put in the time.
Were you able to get any additional um, help from your care um, in the hospital? Um, yeah, yeah, I I was well covered, and uh, I just I just basically told them that, you know, my people are coming in. Uh, you know, we'll we'll sort of keep it to a minimum, and we'll try and keep it one at a time. But you know, my people are coming in because, quite frankly, you know, you. They're, you just they're don't opening, have the skills. They're opening up to that a lot more nowadays where they're encouraging uh, people to bring their care in. And well, I personally, I'm, I'm not going to go in the hospital without my care anymore because they just, the help that, that's in the hospital usually don't have a clue about what's going on. Well, and they've got, they've got so many things that they're, they're amazing at like let them be amazing at those things they're how often are they going to get a, a high level quad like really like it's it's more efficient for them not to have to learn but but you know just have bring your people in it makes way more sense from my perspective but um yeah you know i i, I everybody gets better care and that's the whole object of the exercise so from my own experience, there was a big metal component to dealing with my pressure sore. Yeah. How are you uh, doing in your head? Um, I don't know. I, I, uh, my head's pretty good. So I don't, uh, not that, you know, not implying that yours is bad. Um, but I, I, I don't tend to dwell on it. I, I, you know, this is just what I'm doing this week, man. What does your best life look like, Jim? My best life doesn't look like this year. I'll tell you that because this whole, this whole um, living a living an isolated lifestyle, uh, I don't think has been healthy to anyone. And I've really noticed that it's it's weighed on not just me. I mean, it has definitely weighed on me, but. Um, I'm used to isolation and I'm used to this as we joked earlier, but most people aren't. And, uh, and I see a lot of anxiety in the world and a lot of, uh, a lot of that going on. And uh, I, it really makes me sad. So that's definitely this year has not been the example of the best life, but uh, no, the best life for me is uh, is being the best dad I can be. Uh, my kids are at, at those really important pivotal ages, and I just want to be able to be there for them as best I can and, uh, and be the best husband I can be and support my wife in any way that I'm fit. And, uh, and you know, if uh, if we have a... A long summer that usually works in my favor too, um, but but really, you know, I I think I think my life is is blessed at the at all times. So you know, this is my best life, and uh, and I'm living it every day, and uh, and I'm proud of my accomplishments, and I'm pretty happy to be right where I am right now. That's really great to hear. When I first met you, you were raising funds to climb Killy, and then you did. And then we did, this, yeah. That. This, that made you the first quadriplegic to ever climb the mountain, the first wheelchair climber to ever ascend using the wrong guy route. Yes. First wheelchair climber to successfully climb over Mount Kilimanjaro by climbing up one side and down the other. And you set a world altitude record for a quadriplegic at 14,500 feet. Yahoo! <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it all seems quite amazing now. Uh, but the, 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 the story is so much better than just the headlines because, uh, <clears throat> you know, so many of those things that we did weren't by plan. It's like, you know, we couldn't book space on the Southern route. So 
we'd already announced the climb and we had the plane tickets and we had a whole bunch of stuff already bought and paid for. So we had to go climb something. And uh, so we had to go up the north side. So we had to travel around the mountain from the south side, drive around to the north side. And they basically, you know, turned us loose in a dirt parking lot. And, uh, and off we went. Um, but uh, yeah, what an adventure. I mean, you know, it's... Hey, as we both know, the life expectancy for quads is getting longer and our limitations have pretty much all disappeared but at the time of your accomplishment you were a trailblazer no one had ever done what you'd done before uh, what what inspired you to take this on well i i had this uh this friend that i went to elementary school with eric uh north shore guy eric barnison north shore search and rescue we went to elementary school together and, uh, you know, I, I hadn't seen him in years. And one day he phoned me up out of the blue and he just said, uh, you know, can I come over and talk to you? And, you know, yeah, of course you can. So he came over and told me the story about climbing, you know, in South America and Bolivia. And he had fallen down a, a cliff or down a rock face or something. And uh, he couldn't move for for a, a period of time. You know, it's he just had spinal shock or something. But uh, when he, you know, they got him out of there and he could walk again and all was good, he uh, kind of got a feeling of what it was like to have a spinal cord injury. And uh, he figured when he got back to Canada, I was probably the only guy who would understand his fears and what he was talking about. and. And, uh, and he just, he really, you know, inspired the whole trip just with that, that we, you know, we can, we can inspire other people to do amazing things as well, you know, as, as, as well as, uh, you know, what we chose to do, which was go and climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Was there, was there any peer mentors out there at the time that you were sort of looking at as, you know, like Rick Hansen or somebody like that? Well, Rick, you know, I'm, I'm of the era when, when, when I first met Rick, it was before the Man in Motion tour. And uh, so, yeah, Rick was definitely in my mind, you know. It, it was sort of a, the, the way I thought about it, it was kind of a quadriplegic scaled down version of what Rick did as a para, um, where you just go, you know, you just throw yourself at it and, uh, and sort of let the chips fall as they may. You know, we didn't know, we didn't know how it was going to turn out. We didn't, you know, I wasn't exactly a mountain climber of any sort, but we just decided to do something that sounded kind of cool and kind of fun and, uh, maybe inspire some people along the way. And, uh, we ended up doing something nobody had ever done before. Nobody had ever dreamt of doing before, really. Great things happen uh, in adventures like that where you just kind of throw caution to the wind and just give her. Yeah, yeah, there were some sketchy, there were some sketchy moments on the mountain. And, uh, you know, it was, it was kind of nice to get off the mountain, to be honest. Yeah, what was it? Tell me about that. Well, we were uh, on our, our second day. We sort of went, you got to think of Mount Kilimanjaro as, you know, a standalone mountain and all the lava runs down from the top. So it runs down sort of in a radiating pattern. So the first day we were climbing straight up the fall line for a day and that was okay. And then, but the second day we went up the fall line for the first half of the day and then we started to traverse the hill. So we, uh, once we started to traverse the hill, we had to go up and over all of these sort of lava flows with lava rock and whatnot. And uh, we ended up being on the trail for 13 hours the second day. And uh, it was quite horrendous and it was getting cold. And it was dark and we only had, you know, four or five guys on the chair and uh, we were still an hour away from the, from the cat, it was just a, it turned into a bit of a nightmare, to be honest. 
but then, you know, the team, you know, the 20 or 30 porters came back and helped us out and basically, you know, just about carried me the whole way there. But it was, you know, it was kind of all hands on deck for, for several hours. Logistically, that must have just been a, a nightmare. Were you, were you the one overseeing logistics? Uh, yeah, kind of. <laughs> it was, um, the, lo the logistics were, <clears throat> were such that we didn't really know what we were in for. Um, you know, luckily, Corrine ran ahead, did the hour, the hour jog to camp told them that, hey, we got problems back on the trail. And, uh, you know, I mean, she didn't, doesn't exactly speak Swahili, so it didn't, nobody really paid all that much attention. And then it wasn't until she got to the head, uh, the head guide, and he, uh, once he caught wind that we were on the trail and we were in trouble, he had this amazing booming voice, this man named Fustino. And man, when he hollered, it was like up they got and they just started beelining it back on the trail to, to bring us in. And uh, yeah, it was it was nice to get into the tent and warm up and put some food in and eventually get to bed that night. Yeah. I remember sitting in my backyard with you and we talked about what the chair might be like that you built. Can you tell me more about how you eventually came to that final design? Well, I originally, uh, Sam Sullivan had come to me with, you know, some ideas about, about his, uh, his trail rider. And he, uh, he said, you know, if you ever want to try it, I actually made one and it works pretty good. And I never, ever, never tried it sort of, then um but but when i did try it it was you know it was so unique and so different uh it was a revelation on its own but what i always thought was especially for a trip like this is it would kind of need some shock absorbing and so i took a trail rider and sort of the vision was to have a motocross bike that bottom rear uh rear uh swing arm yeah the lower swing arm just totally makes sense and you could just put a little you know mountain bike shock in there a little fox shock and uh you'd be away to the races and that's pretty much what we built you know we we had to build it on a budget we had to build it real fast and uh you know the 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 fellas who did that did that project and then, of course, Toby over at Toby Cycle Works, they, uh, they put it all together and put it in the box. And the next thing you know, we, we put it together. We, we never actually put the chair together or tested it or sat in it or anything uh, before we left. We, we put it together for the first time in Africa. Um, and we didn't know if we had all the nuts and bolts and pieces and parts. And um, so we were pretty relieved when we actually had everything. Um, and and that it you know it performed exactly the way I'd the way I'd imagined and uh, to this day it still still holds up next to a trail rider I can I can vouch for that that's for sure right on do you still have it I sure do yeah it's out in the garage and uh, it goes out once in a while yeah get the family take you out. Ooh. Yeah, we go out every. Uh, we haven't been out. We haven't been out in about a year and a half. But uh, but we go out now and then. Yeah. Cool. So if you're gonna do it again, what do you think that would look like? Um, if I was gonna do it again, I would probably. Uh, I would definitely try and do the southern route because it's a lot easier. Um, we didn't go up to the summit. We just sort of came across the saddle at about. 15,000, a little under 15,000 feet. So uh, the last, the last pitch from the saddle up to the crater rim is, is extremely steep and extremely, uh, 
it's a it's a scree slope, so it's pretty loose. You you tend to want to climb that when it's still frozen. You know, altitude sickness is not not that great, so uh, you probably you know it, that that part of it. I was glad we didn't do. Um, we sort of one of the days our our third day, we spent the morning just hiking across this high alpine desert looking at the final pitch up to the up to the crater rim and it just you know switchbacks the whole way and it just looked so sketchy bry for it's from a chair we didn't have we were in such a hurry to get out get the chair built we didn't have you know there was no safety stuff i didn't even have a helmet you know we were we were yeah. going up there it didn't didn't seem like all that much fun and it didn't seem like We've been through so much already. It was like, you know what? It's it's time. Let's go down and call him in. I said, I'm sure that's how Mallory was feeling. Yeah. Well, we went down. We started to come down the south side, and we got to uh, the hut complex around thirteen and a half thousand feet. And you know, on the south side of the south side of the mountain, you can you can buy you know food and stuff, and they have phones and. But they also sell beer, so we pulled together all the money we had, and we think we had about twelve porters with us plus ourselves. And uh, so my 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 wife Corinne, myself, and my brother Tony, we pulled together all the money we had, and we had enough to buy each guy a beer. So right we sat there on our last night on the hill, and uh, these nice big one-liter bottles, and we all just sat there and had a beer. And it was that was the best part of the whole trip, right there. Beautiful. You yeah, been, was, you've you've never been back, have you? <laughs> no, I'd like to go back to Africa to show the kids, you know, the animals in the uh, on safari and whatnot. Um, but no, we haven't been back. Uh, it's something I hope I get back there, but it's something everybody should see at least once. So after all that, in 2003, you received the Queen's Golden Jubilee Commemorative Medal. Yep. What was that like for you? <laughs> well, we were in Africa when they had the official uh, the official ceremony for it. So we obviously didn't get the full pomp and ceremony and whatnot. But um, we eventually... Uh, it was our uh, local member of parliament who came to Corinne's school, and we did it in front of the school, um, oh, which was which was yeah. My my two nieces were in in the school, so it was it's kind of a kind of a community Lynn Valley kind of thing that we did it. We did it there, and that was uh, you know it was still an honor, and it still is an honor to be to be truthful. You did a lot of public speaking. Did you do public speaking before your injury or was that something that developed after your, your adventure? It was just kind of uh, during and afterwards. It's uh, not something I really sought out beforehand, but, uh, but afterwards everybody just kind of looked at me to sort of do the talk and then, Oh, I can I can do that. So yeah, as as my mother would always say to me, she goes, "Well, you're not paralyzed from the neck up. I know that." So uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just something you know, something I think I'm I'm sort of naturally good at, and probably get it from my father. But uh, yeah, I I like doing it. I don't do it as much anymore, but I still enjoy it. You did the Vicky Gabbro show. I remember you told me you went, you started to go dysreflexic on the show or something like that. Yeah, it was pretty funny. They were, uh, you spend, you spend like a half an hour of them, you know, powdering you and putting all this stuff on you. And so you don't shine on the camera and, uh, just the way my bladder was at the time, you know, I, I go dysreflexic when I void. So you know, we're sort of halfway through the shot. And she's like looking at me like, are you okay? You look like you're going to explode or something. 
And of course, I got a towel on my lap for just these moments. So I wipe, you know, wipe my my brow and whatnot. And I got a towel full of powder and muck. And uh, my skin, I still go back and I look at the footage and my skin is just so shiny. You can watch a movie on my forehead kind of thing. You look like you're starting to glaze a little bit. Are you are you getting ready for a pee? Oh yeah, I've just gotta I've just gotta change my position a little bit, but that's okay. Are are you still doing the same thing that you used to? Do you just you with you, my bladder? You build up and void or something? No. Or? No, we had to put an end to that practice uh probably about more than five years ago now. Uh, now I got a super pubic catheter, and that uh, that's 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 pretty amazing. It, you know, change. I don't go dysreflexic. You know, four or five times a day anymore. I just yeah. uh, you know we just manage it on a more just more autom automatic basis. Like every every few hours, we'll just dump it. And uh, my urologist says that's that's sort of that's the best way to do it, and you know it's it's changed my life. I'm not always cold. I'm not always moist. I'm not always in wet clothes, uh, so it's way better from my perspective as well. Um, do you get a lot of bladder infections? Well, with a super pubic, it's kind of hard kind of hard not to because you don't have a sterile system you always have something foreign in there and around the wound the wound around the site where it goes in it's pretty much impossible to keep stuff from migrating in there so we don't we don't really call it an infection we call it a colonization that yeah. makes all the difference in the world my, bug, my bugs don't bother me so much, and I don't bother them so much, and we just kind of we just kind of live together. Yeah, and, and I think that's the trick is finding some way to live in balance with the bugs that you have. Like uh, Pseudomonas, I imagine, is one of the ones you might have. Yeah, I don't I don't know, but they're. I, uh, I lived with a super pubic for fourteen years. Yeah. And eventually, I I lost my bladder. I couldn't do it anymore. Wow. Well, I hope I'm not in for that. So uh, you shared with me that if you could change something in the world today, you would bring back independent and unbiased investigative journalism. <laughs> do you yes, believe? Do you believe that there really is such a thing as unbiased journalism? And if you uh, do, where do you get your unbiased journalism from? I'm not sure I get any. And uh, I think my, my quest to try and find things that are unbiased, uh, I think that's where I find my, my version of the truth. And I say it that way because I don't know if we ever know if we're getting the straight goods on anything. You know, there's so many vested interests. And now with, you know, the levels of data mining and this and that and the other thing, it's hard to know that, you know, there's there's not uh, there's not nefarious or, or not even non-nefarious for that matter, but just, you know, corporate interests that have more interest in feeding me what's going to make them money rather than, you know, necessarily what, what, what I'm looking for um, in whether it's journalism or, you know, a Google search or, uh, you know, Amazon trying to sell me toasters. So I, um, I'm not so sure. I, uh, I tend to be very cynical on certain days and I tend to be optimistic on other days. So, Today's an optimistic day, so it's. Are you, uh, are you a podcast listener? Um, I I I float around. I uh, I don't have don't have too many regular things. I I have you know some go tos, but uh, but really I'm I'm uh, I I follow my nose to be honest. Mm -hmm.
I I got into podcasts a while back. I found they were easy to listen to when I was doing something or at nighttime before bed. It was sort of a way, yeah. a nice way to wind down. And obviously, I want people to listen to podcasts because I have one. So, um, listen to more podcasts, Jim. Well, I, um, yeah, I just don't. I, I have a short attention span if I'm not into it, and uh, and you couple that with uh, a short memory span because I'm getting on in my fifties. Um, you remember that that was really good, but you can't remember what it was. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think I think for me, one of the biggest challenges is don't take anything too seriously. You know, really, it's just, you know, it's just today. And, uh, you know, things will be better tomorrow. Yeah, today's a, tomorrow's a new day. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, that's you know, if you could offer anything – Anything to, you know, younger, younger people with spinal cord injuries and whatnot, you know, it's, it sounds, it it always sounds cliche, but you know, really, um, you know, you go through, you go through times, you know, you know, when you're getting patched up from this, that, or the other thing. And, you know, yeah, it's a miserable, miserable time to be you. Eh, it's not going to be forever. It's just right now. And you'll, you'll yeah, get through that too. Just getting through it. You know that it's not going to last forever and the, the pain will go away and yeah, you'll be okay again. And, and yeah, hopefully, well, you'll be okay again. Yeah. Something yeah. Else, and you'll be there again the next day. Well, the you know, there's always going to be something, at least with us, you know, it's, it's it's usually something you can see and you can you know i mean it's some of the pain that able-bodied folks have to go through and you'd never know it because you know it's something internal or it's emotional or it's you know we're we we pretty much we have it you what you see is what you get what are you most grateful in life for oh i have to say my partner you know, she puts up with a lot. Um, she puts up with a lot, you know, obviously the physical physicality of, of, of this lifestyle. Um, but just a great, great person to be with and spend time with and be lucky enough to hang out with and uh, being able to do that day in and day out. Like that's probably probably the best thing I have in my life right now. Right on, man. I love Corey. I think you have a wonderful wife. She's yeah. an amazing lady. Yeah, pretty lucky. What are the daily practices that have made the biggest difference for your health and well-being? Um, a real simple one. And I don't know whether this is I read something about this once after I'd been doing it for years, but the first thing I do in the morning is I guzzle down a cup of a, a cup of hot tap water. So not boiling water, but pretty much as hot as I can take. I will drink that as fast as I can in the morning. And I do the same thing before I go to bed. And I get it that some people have to go, you know, get up and go to the bathroom in the night. But I'm not one of those guys, so I don't really care. Um, so, yeah, I'll drink that. And I read somewhere years later that that was some ancient Japanese thing. That that's what somebody says they do over there and it's supposed to be real healthy. So, I don't know. And I do that. Been, you've been doing this for how long? Oh, uh, 20 years. And what, what do you notice that, that it does for you? Um, well, one, it, it, uh, it gives me a bla- uh, one more blast of water, which is probably why I started it, just to keep my fluid up. But uh, I don't know, just that, that, that warm water, I always feel like it's sort of giving me a bit of a flush. And... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, but that's my thing. Well, I'm going to give it a try. 
Can you wind us up with some words of wisdom? Uh, maybe. Jim's always got words of wisdom. Come on. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, this, 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 this lifestyle that we lead, Brian, always, it always catches people by surprise. You don't sort of, you don't, you don't sort of sign up for this course in university or high school and say, oh, I want to try out being a quadriplegic for a little while. And, uh, and of course, you don't get any days off and you don't get any breaks and you don't ever get to go be able-bodied down in Mexico for a week. I mean, it's, it's a tough, tough go. And uh, I think if you can take it easy on yourself and, uh, and this too shall pass, not that you're going to get up and run around, but I mean, those difficult times, they're not, they're not always there. And uh, when you're enjoying good times, just, just enjoy the good times. And, uh, and you know, when the, when the, the clouds start to appear on the horizon, yeah, you might have to go through some stuff. But really, you know, life is what you make it, and uh, why not make it the best you can? So, Don't uh, worry, be happy. Yeah, you know, and that got us to Killy and got us back from Killy and, uh, you know, got me in this, this adventure of, a, of being a father and family man. And, uh, like, you know, you never know how life's going to unfold, but it, uh, it can unfold in some pretty amazing ways. It kind of all happens one day at a time. It does. And uh, it really is the journey of, of however many steps or in our case, revolutions. And, uh, and, and that's kind of the same for everybody. Well, buddy, it's 420 and uh, it's time to go. <laughs> yeah, gotta go. Don't mean to be rushing you, but. <laughs> Jim, thanks right. for. Thanks for uh, joining me on Quad Life. Well, it's been, it, uh, it's been a real pleasure, Brad. Been a real pleasure catching up with you, and uh, and I look forward to chatting with you again, buddy. Thanks, Jim, for joining me on the show today. For more information about Jim and his journey, please visit jimmolina.com. We have the link posted on the Quad Life Facebook page. Well, that's it for the show. Just remember, sometimes things go wrong, and when they do, just shit your pants and get back out there.